0: the first reading is from genesis 2 verses 15 to 25 and the second one is ephesians 5 verses 22 to 33 from from genesis 2 verse 15 the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and take care of it and the lord god commanded the man you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And then from Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body for which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to pre- present her to himself As a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives just as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However each, one of you, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband.
1: Hello, everyone. It's great to be with you again. Uh, my name is Evan. I'm the Senior Minister of St. Matthew's, and it's great to be able to share God's Word with you. And so let's pray that God would give us understanding of his Word. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, all of us are equally small before you, equally broken and equally in need of you. And so, Lord, we pray today that you might make us equally open to your word, that we might hear, that we might obey, and that we might rejoice in all that you have to say to us. Amen. Well, God loves a good wedding, and if God loves a good wedding, then He must really love Unichurch because, well, we seem to have a lot of them around here. But weddings are actually central to the whole story of the Bible, you may not realise that, but they really are. Uh, The Bible ends with a wedding, it ends with the wedding between Jesus Christ and His bride, the church, at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Uh, The ministry of Jesus began With a wedding, the wedding at Cana in Galilee, where he turned water into wine. And the Bible even begins with a wedding. Genesis chapter 2, that Oscar just read for us, describes the first wedding, where God Himself gives the bride to her husband, to His husband in in verse 22, like a proud father walking his daughter down the aisle. And Adam, like so many grooms, is overjoyed at seeing his bride, so moved that he actually bursts into spontaneous song. And verse 22, and verse 23 is the poem that Adam composes. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. At last, finally, this is the one. This is the one I've been looking forward to. This is the one I've been longing for. And now she's here. Uh, You know, it's a touch melodramatic. Uh, He hasn't really been waiting that long. Uh, He was only made just a couple of verses ago. Uh, But he's overjoyed at seeing her and he's overjoyed at being one with her. And I wonder whether there's an important lesson already in this for us. Uh, I wonder if there's an important lesson for the women in our audience tonight. You know, when your man, when he first saw you, if he didn't burst into spontaneous song, maybe you could have done better. I don't know. (laughs) And men, Adam is to blame. He's the one who raised the bar for the rest of us. But what's really interesting about the first wedding in Genesis chapter 2 is the movement. There is a movement to Genesis chapter 2. At the beginning of the chapter, there is just Adam and Adam alone. There's one. And then they become two. They become Adam and Eve. And then in marriage, at the end of the chapter, they become one again. Uh, One to two, and back to one again. And really today, what I want to do is just examine that movement for a moment, uh, and then end by talking very briefly about the last wedding. And it's all there in the outline that you got as you came in, and it'll be really helpful for you to keep your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 2. But firstly then, humanity begins the passage as one, as Adam, and as Adam alone. And that aloneness, we're told in chapter 2, verse 18, is not good. Come with me to verse 18, would you? Uh, The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Uh, That verse really sticks out to us because up until now, everything that God has made, He's been able to say that it's either good or very good. And so to find something that is not good, well, that's highly unusual. And God resolves to do something about it, to make a helper for Adam, who is a suitable complement to him. And it is very easy to see verse 18 in kind of romantic terms, to sort of see, well, Adam must be alone, he he must be lonely, he needs a girlfriend, he needs a wife, he he needs someone. Only I'm not sure that that's what it's saying. After all, Adam isn't alone. Adam is in the garden with God. God walks with him in in the cool of the afternoon each day. He has the perfect of all companions with which to spend his time. Uh, Marriage is not the answer to the problem of loneliness, God actually has other answers to that. Now, in in its context, there's a much bigger reason why it is not good for Adam to be alone, something that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Uh, And that is this idea that God created our world as an unfinished project... God created humanity to continue the work that he began, uh, to continue his work of creation. And so God even planted a a garden in the east, in Eden, and he puts Adam in that garden and he almost says to Adam, now you take over, now you finish the work, make the rest of the world like this garden, good for human beings to live in, fill and multiply, rule over the earth, spread the rule of God to all the face of the earth. But that's just too big a job for Adam alone and so it's not good for him to be alone and so in verse 18 God looks for a helper to complement Adam Uh, and so God uh, brings to Adam all the animals in verses 19 and 20 and Adam even names all of the animals and yet from amongst none of them is a suitable helper found none are going to be able to help Adam bear the image of God to this world So God puts Adam to sleep, does a little bit of surgery, removes one of his ribs, and from that rib, he forms the woman. She truly is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. She is made of the same stuff as him, and she's made by the same hands as him. And humanity began as one, began as Adam, but now it has become two. It's become Adam and Eve. Eve. And they will become a family, from whom will come the entire human race. We are all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And that's why in English you can, or at least you you could, refer to all of the human race as man or mankind. You could do that once upon a time. And it wasn't being sexist, it wasn't being rude in any way, shape or form it was simply making the profound theological point that all human beings come from Adam because Adam is the Hebrew word for man. We are all Adam. We are all Adam kind. We are all one big family. And once upon a time, using the language of mankind was simply making that point in a way that removed any basis for sexism or racism. Sadly, we cannot do that anymore, and I can't help but feel that we've lost something in the process. So, humanity began as one, but now it's two, and Eve is brought to Adam, and Adam is delighted to see her. And yet, Eve is described as a helper, but what does that mean? What does it actually mean when it says that, that Eve is a helper? Because that can be a bit of a loaded term, can't it? It's the kind of word that can very easily conjure the wrong image. It can almost conjure the image of somehow like a a 60s housewife who's cooking and cleaning and and looking after all of the children while the husband kind of sits down in the the lounge chair reading the newspaper in a a smoking jacket and a cravat, you know, with a snifter of brandy in one hand. But that's the wrong image. That's not the image at all that you ought to be thinking of. Uh, Have you ever seen Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers? Who's kind of seen that movie? Anyone? uh, This illustration is running out of steam. It's getting a little old these days. So if you've never seen that, just think of the last battle scene in Endgame. I can't use that as an illustration yet. I don't want to spoil it for anyone. But either way, it it, it works. Either way, it works. Because right at the end of The Two Towers is the Battle of Helm's Deep. And the good guys are besieged in their castle and they're surrounded by this huge army of orcs and they're about to lose, they're about to all be, be killed. But then right at the end the riders of Rohan come up over the hill and they rescue them. They sweep down on the rays of the dawn to crush Saruman's army and they win a great victory. And that is the image that I want you to have in your heads as you think of the word helper. The word helper in the Bible is primarily used to describe military reinforcements. That's what a helper is. And most commonly, it refers to God. God often refers to himself as the helper of Israel, as he comes and wins the battle for them, and as he gives them victory. And it's in this sense that Eve comes to Adam. She comes as reinforcements. The job is too big. He cannot complete the task that he's been given. He needs help. And so here comes Eve to his rescue. She is reinforcement. She comes to him equal in power, equal in resources, equal in ability. She comes to as made in God's image, as much as Adam is. She is fundamentally and essentially equal to him. A, and a proper understanding of this will oppose all values and attitudes that devalue or degrade women. Eve is equal to Adam, but she's also different to Adam. She is a helper who is a complement to him. And that word, that word suitable there, that that suitable complement to him, that word, it actually has two Hebrew words behind it. The word like and the word opposite. Eve is, somehow she is like Adam, but she's also opposite to Adam. She's also different to Adam. She's the same and yet she's different. They're, they're almost like two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. If they were identical, then actually they wouldn't fit together at all. But if they're two different pieces, yet two complementary pieces, two rightly different pieces, then actually not only can they fit together, but the picture they can form together is greater and more beautiful than anything either of them could achieve on their own. And so at last, the perfect like opposite helper for Adam has been found. Adam had a need. He cannot rule creation in God's image alone. But together with his perfect like opposite helper, together with Eve, they can. No wonder he was so excited to meet her. Now it is worth pausing here for a moment. Because we live in a world that's very different to this one, don't we? We live in a world where now same-sex relationships are increasingly being celebrated and seen as normal. But if we listen to the story that God, the beginningless Creator, is telling us, then man does not find his perfect like opposite in man. And nor does woman find her own perfect like opposite in woman. You cannot rule the world in the image of God in a same-sex relationship, according to Genesis chapter 2. And to say anything else is to say that somehow God got it wrong and that he made a huge mistake. If man could have done it on his own or with another man, there would have been no need for a like-opposite partner. But man's aloneness is not good. And only in woman, in woman, only in Eve, does Adam find what he needs to bear God's image and what she needs to bear God's image to this world. <laughs> Same sex marriage is only acceptable if you have a radically different view of marriage other than what Genesis chapter 2 is teaching us. And the word of God does not change no matter what happens in our world and no matter what even happens in our church. Both sexes are essential. Both sexes are equal, but it's when both sexes come together as complementary like opposites that we're truly able to bear God's image and rule God's worlds. Then they're able to be a family. Then they're able to fill the earth and to subdue it. Then they're able to carry the rule of God to all of creation, as God always intended us to do. But what then is the difference between men and women? If there is a difference, well, what is it? What does the Bible say the difference between men and women is? Uh, What does this like opposite mean? Well, uh, many people have made millions of dollars trying to explain this. If you kind of go to book depository, you'll find dozens upon dozens of books trying to describe the differences between men and women. Uh, Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, Uh, why men won't ask for directions and women can't read maps, or my absolutely favourite one of all, why men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti. I have absolutely no idea what that means, uh, but someone's made an awful lot of money writing books on on that idea. Uh, But we have to be very careful about speculation here. We have to be very careful just to stick to what the Word of God teaches us. There are obvious differences between men and women, uh, obvious differences in the form of anatomy and, and reproduction. Uh, but nowhere in the Bible uh, is the difference between men and women ever described in terms of capacity or, or capability. Uh, never, it's never described as a difference in emotional stability or intelligence or empathy. Uh, men are never described as being more task-oriented and women are never described as being more relationally oriented, despite the stereotypes today. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 does talk of women being weaker, Uh, But in its context, and this would require almost a whole sermon unto itself, in its context it's speaking about the vulnerability that women have as mothers, as, as the bearers of children. Now the difference between Adam and Eve is one of role. They have different roles. The role of Eve is to help Adam in the responsibility that he was given. Adam was made first to Adam was given the responsibility to, to tend to the garden and to rule over this world. To Adam was given the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a command that he was to teach Eve. And Adam even names Eve. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it will speak of how man was not created for woman, but woman for man to be, the perfect like opposite helper. And as if to confirm it uh, a little later in Genesis chapter 3, when the man and the woman do sin, well, to whom does God come and ask for an accounting? Well, it's to Adam that he says, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? And the rest of the Bible will remember the sin of Genesis chapter 3, not as the sin of Eve, but of the sin of Adam. But don't mishear me. Difference in role does not deny a quality of value. Difference in role does not deny a quality of value. Jesus in the New Testament is described as submitting to the will of his Father. And yet no Christian man or woman would ever describe Jesus as anything other than equal with God. And nor is a child less than their parents, even though a child obeys their parents especially when that child, again, is the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that he obeyed his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, like in Luke chapter 2, for example. Now, Eve helps Adam in the responsibility that he has been given. They have different roles. Eve comes to Adam as another pair of hands, yes, but actually as something much more profound than that. She comes as a lover, she comes as an encourager, she comes as another mind, another perspective, she comes as a mother... And she comes as a reason for the work that he will do, just as he is the reason for the work that she will do. Now, because they have each other and because they will have a family, now the work that they will do is not just for themselves, now it genuinely is for the service of someone else, being a servant of each other rather than being selfish. But neither can do it alone. They both need each other. And just as God has brought order to the creation, so too there is order between the sexes. To men is given the responsibility and the accountability, and women are the helpers. Matthew Henry has a a wonderful quote about this. He says, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. And some people have compared patriarchy to a march where man beats the drum and a woman is expected to keep the time. And others have said that feminism is like a race where the two are competing and the field needs to be level. But in Christianity, the relationship between men and women is much more like a dance, a dance between two equal partners enjoying the dance enjoying the chance to be close to one another but where maximum enjoyment does come where one leads and the other follows and all of this might leave you uncomfortable and it might leave you certainly should leave you with more questions and that's okay but this is the way that God has made us this difference is written into who we are and when are humans most free When are humans most fulfilled, most healthy, most happy? Well, like a fish in water, it's when we submit to the way that God has made us and where we rejoice in our nature as those who have been made by God. And so let me say to this, let me say this to you men for a moment. To us is given a real responsibility in marriage and within the household of God In a way that doesn't suggest superiority or challenge equality. It is merely a God-given role. It suggests love, it suggests service, it suggests sacrifice, it suggests that we follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who gave Himself up for His bride, who was willing to die for His bride. And our responsibility is to make sure that our families, should the Lord give us one, are taken care of, and are looked after. We are responsible for the spiritual well-being of our families. Husbands are responsible for the spiritual well-being of their wives. Fathers are responsible for the spiritual well-being of their children, to see them raised in the fear and the instruction of the Lord. To be a man is to be a spiritual leader, and to take responsibility. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra teaches the whole community the law of God, but then on the second day, he just asks back the fathers. Why? Because they need further training, because they're leaders in their own households. And we husbands, we do, those of us who are husbands or those of us who aspire to be husbands, we do need to submit ourselves to God and take the responsibility that He has given us but if you have any understanding of the importance of that task, then you will seek to use all the wisdom and intelligence and skill and energy of your wife alongside yourself in such an important undertaking. There's so much more that we could say. So much more that we could say. But we began as one, and then with Eve they have become two. But then right at the end of Genesis chapter 2, as they complement each other, as they depend on one another, as God intended, they actually, Adam and Eve, they become one again. They become one, but one in the relationship of marriage. The public, binding, lasting physical union between two persons of the opposite sex in verse 24. You can see that it's public because it involves leaving your old family and making a new one. We can see that it's physical and it's sexual because they bond, they cleave, they join together. And we can see that it's lasting because they become one, which is what God always intended for them to be. And here is the beginning, I think, of much of the confusion that we have, that many people have, as we try and read what the Bible has to say about men and women. Because in our world today, whenever you bring up the topic of men and women, the issue is almost always one of equality. But whenever you talk about men and women in the Bible, well, equality was established right there back in Genesis chapter 1, when God created us both in His image. There's a much deeper question that's being asked in the Bible not how are men and women equal, but actually how can men and women be one? How can they be united together? In their service of God who made them? And to God, that's a much more important question. And to us, that's a much more important question. In fact, it's a much more difficult question as well. And if you come to the Scriptures and you keep asking the question of equality, then yes, there are times where you will be baffled by the answer that God seems to be giving. And many people have abandoned the scriptures precisely because they couldn't stop for a moment and imagine that perhaps God was asking a different question other than the question of equality. But no, it's not a question of equality. It's always for God a question of how can they be one. And so Adam and Eve do, they become literally one flesh again in verse 24. And then in verse 25, there is this wonderful picture of their relationship. They are naked with each other without any shame. It's a beautiful picture of oneness, of being completely open to each other, of being uh, completely vulnerable with with each other, yet without any fear. There's no fear of rejection. There's no fear of, of criticism. There's no fear that somehow one will will get up and and walk away. There's just this complete openness to each other, each honouring the other for who they are. And the sexual relationship between a man and a woman is the physical expression of that united relationship. Even the act of sex is an act of oneness. God's desire for oneness is actually written on our very bodies. And really, all of the Bible's teaching on sex and marriage and dating and relationships between men and women, it all comes out of this passage in Genesis chapter 2. It all comes out of this wonderful picture of oneness. This wonderful, beautiful, desirable picture. And marriage is a wonderful thing. That desire within us to marry, or that desire within us to draw close to the one to whom we have married, It's a very natural thing. God has given it to you. It's part of how He has made you. That emptiness that we feel when we don't have that person or that emptiness that we feel when there is a problem in our marriage, that too is part of the way that God has made us. But this oneness only happens as we give ourselves to one another completely. As we give 100% of ourselves 100% of the time. I remember uh, many years ago, uh, a, a lovely young couple came to, to Bonn and myself and, and uh, they wanted some premarital counselling. They wanted to get ready for, for marriage and we, we sat down with them and we spoke with them and they, and they said to us, uh, we've worked this all out, we've, we've talked about this lot and we've decided that this is going to be a marriage of equals. We're each going to give 50%. And I, I, you know, I, I applauded the, the sentiment. There's a, there's a right sentiment in there but I had to sit down with them and say, if that's your attitude actually, your marriage is going to fail. It's not going to last. Because marriage isn't about giving just 50%. Marriage is actually about giving 100%. Marriage is about giving yourself completely and them about giving themselves completely to you. That's what oneness requires. And so, of course, there is an intense vulnerability to marriage. And as any of us who are married know. This topic, as wonderful as it is, and as wonderful as it should be, and as wonderful as the picture of verse 25 is, it does not always fill us with wonderful feelings. This is not always how marriage is. Many of us know the pain of broken marriages. In our families, our friends, perhaps our parents, perhaps even ourselves. The loneliness of singleness is one thing, but it is nothing compared to the loneliness of a broken marriage, or a distant marriage, or a violent marriage. And amongst us here, there are those who bear the scars of such marriages, bear the scars because of the intense vulnerability that comes with marriage. We do become vulnerable to the selfishness of each other. That that stubborn refusal to give 100%, 100% of the time. And we become vulnerable to our own selfishness as well. Often it's our own selfishness that can do irreparable damage to our marriages, to our relationships. Because in this world, we are used to being consumers, aren't we? In fact, we're trained to be consumers from a very young age and it's very easy to let the kind of consumer attitude flow into our marriages and into our relationships we want a product and we want a product that satisfies me we want a product that's that's tailored for me that's perfect for me one that's customized for my needs i don't want a product that fights back i don't want a product that i have to give myself 100 percent to I don't want a product that I have to serve, I want one that serves me. Ours, so often, very sadly, is a selfish love. Yes, I do want to receive everything, but I want to give as little as I can in return. I do want 100% from you, but inside me there's this little calculation going on. How little do I have to give in order to get what I want? And so in our world, people tend to hang very loose to their relationships. There is always that unwritten rule that if this product stops meeting my needs or if I find a better product or even just a cheaper product, well, I'll go with that one. Thank you very much. Now, very sadly, there is great hurt in our world on this topic of marriage and so often, so many people, they've lost that ability to give themselves completely to, uh, to another person and yet, where did Adam and Eve find that beautiful picture of oneness in verse 25? They found it when they gave themselves completely to one another. When they gave themselves to each other completely with man taking the responsibility and woman as the helper, promising to become one in every way, emotional emotionally, socially, financially, spiritually, and finally, last of all, even sexually... And only then did they find that beautiful picture of oneness that God describes. But remember, marriage, as wonderful as it is, is not the answer to the problem of loneliness. It's the answer to the problem of how can we do the job that God has given us? How can we as a a human race spread over this whole earth and fill it and rule over it in the image of God? And here is perhaps the greatest mistake that we can make about marriage, as Christians. Uh, to somehow assume that, uh, that marriage is a relationship that only ever points inwards. That it's only ever about you kind of staring romantically into your partner's lives for the, for, you know, for, forever. And there are wonderfully romantic moments in marriage. Uh, there are good moments in marriage. It's my wife's birthday tomorrow, I've got some plans, let me tell you. But honestly, most of marriage is fairly ordinary. Uh, most of marriage is you just kind of doing life together and, and running a house together and looking after kids together. An awful lot of, of conversations in marriage is, can you get some milk and, um, you know, we need to, that person needs cleaning, that person's just done a poo in their nappy and they need to be... You know, like, an awful lot of marriage is, is, is very mundane, is very ordinary because that's, that's what marriage is, it's functional in the Bible. It's about doing a job. And so, uh, marriage is not about just looking inwards, looking into each other's eyes. Marriage is actually always about looking outwards. Marriage is a partnership that's devoted to the service of others, the service of other people in our family, the service of of our children, uh, the service of each other in the church. Marriage always is open to and desires to have children, to create a new family that can take its place in fulfilling God's purpose is to rule this world together. One, two, and then in marriage they became one again. All part of God's plan for us to bear His image to our worlds. Now, if you've been listening carefully to all of this, then you, you might think that I'm saying something quite controversial. You might imagine that somehow I'm saying that in order for me... To bear the image of God to this world, I have to be married. Is that what you're saying, Evan? Is Is that what you're trying to say? And I want to say yes. That is exactly what I am saying. That's absolutely what I am saying. But to understand that properly, we need to come not. We need to not just stay in Genesis. We need to go all the way to the end. We need to go all the way to the last marriage, because the truth is that all human marriages begin with joy but they end in tragedy. Whether it's divorce or death, the human bond of love eventually is broken. But God promises another marriage. God promises that in the end, there will be a marriage between Jesus Christ and His Church. And this marriage is a marriage that it begins with tragedy. It begins with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on a cross for our sins. And yet it ends, it ends with a a wonderful, joyful, loving union that will never be broken. And Ephesians chapter 5 reminds us that actually this picture of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, as wonderful as it is, as good as it is, is just a picture. It's just a pale shadow of what that last marriage between Christ and the church will be like. In fact, God here, even before the creation of the world, God looked forward and saw how wonderful it would be to live with Him and to live with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in heaven forever. And that's when He created this human relationship of marriage, as the closest thing, as the closest human relationship to how wonderful it will be to be with Him forever. You see, God does not want to relate to us simply as a a king to His subjects, even though He is a great king. Nor does He want to relate to us merely as a, a shepherd to the sheep, even though He is the good shepherd. And nor even does God want to relate to us merely as a father to His children, even though He is the father of us all. God wants to know us, God wants to love us, God wants to care for us, God wants to unite with us as profoundly as a husband and a wife do. Time and time again, God in the Bible describes himself as a bridegroom. Isaiah 54, uh, Malachi chapter 2, many places in the book of Jeremiah. The bridegroom of the people who give themselves to him wholeheartedly, like a bride does to her husband on her wedding day. And if creation was ruled by Adam and his like-opposite helper and creation was kind of somehow all that we had, then actually, my message to you tonight would be quite simple, and that is, hurry up and get married, and hurry up and have children. (laughs) That would be my message to you. If creation was all that we had, that's what I'd say to you. But creation isn't all that we have. Creation was ruled by Adam, and by his like-opposite helper, Eve. But new creation is ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ and we will rule alongside Him as His bride. For we are His church. We are the ones that He died for. We are the ones whom He has washed clean and now presents holy and blameless towards God the Father. We are the ones who, even though we have fallen, even though we have sinned, even though we we were but broken images, tarnished reflections of God, of what we ought to have been In Jesus, we have been and are being lovingly restored to be the perfect images of God as we reflect Jesus Christ, the one who saved us. We are Christ's bride. Gentlemen, say it with me. We are Christ's bride. We are brides of Christ. And so if you are not married now, Or the Apostle Paul would say, actually, you're you're probably better off. You're probably better off than those who are married. Because you can be undivided in your devotion to the Lord and to your upcoming eternal marriage. Because it is possible to become so wrapped up in our earthly marriage or so wrapped up in our earthly desire to get married that somehow we forget or miss out on or aren't ready for the heavenly eternal marriage that God promises to all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God wants no one to miss out on that. He's been preparing for that since before the creation of the world. God wants each and every one of us to know the joy that comes from oneness with him, the oneness of which even the oneness of the best of earthly marriages is but a pale shadow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. For you have given to us a wonderful gift, the gift of marriage. Without it, we wouldn't be able to do the very task that you have given us in this world. And yet that's not all that we have to thank you for, is it, Lord? For you have given us an even more wonderful gift, an even more wonderful marriage. In Jesus Christ, you have given us the gift of an eternal marriage when we put our faith in you. And so, Lord, we pray that whatever our circumstances in life now, whatever they are and whatever they may be, we pray that nothing would get in the way of us knowing Jesus and trusting Jesus and longing for that last wedding that last marriage that you've promised to us all. Amen.